this Granta podcast, our poetry editor Rachel Allen speaks with Astrid Alban about her work, the interdisciplinary journal Pause, and poetic alter egos. Hello Astrid, thank you for coming in today. I wonder if we could begin with you reading um, a few poems from your new collection, Plain Speak. Yes, and thank you Rachel for having me. And I'm going to read a couple of poems. The first one is called Poet Seeks Travelling Companion. Poet is at the bus stop. He too has a monkey now he is here on my shoulder. He doesn't have a monkey exactly as I imagined. The bus driver says two passengers. Poet sees only one getting off, other getting on. Poet asks always and driver says longing and loss, family fare. Poet asks how you tell which is which. Driver says, not my circus, not my monkey. Loss gets on. No, longing gets on. Now this one's herky-jerky. The elevator up and down the ages rocks like a dinosaur, shifts mountain springs, iron ore, its weight from left to right, I'm the sudden coolness in the air. I'm coming down like rain, the kind the eye can see, like poet playing air guitar. Everything, love, home, envy and regret, is a complex of occasions, like my mother playing solitaire. She listens to the radio, only she's not there. She's up, she's down, shifts her chair, will crash into the earth in 30 billion years from now. And the next one is uh, Hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite. The shape of a screaming Goya comes face to face with the face of my early life, says a boy is a boy by birth and not a choice. This breaking news is worse, far worse than when poet wanted to grow up, be a Jew and write the history of the world hard pressed to a diasporic chest. A slug hermaphrodite, moves from bee to drainpipe, go-kart, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy, girl, girl, goya, goy. The rage of sleep is fragile, outlives the scattered, broken ruins, and no fair amount of fairy liquid will wash the mucus of the rest. And this one is Vodka and Lime, which is also on the website. Vodka and Lime. High up in atmosphere, vertigo intact inside vodka and lime, life jacket stashed under front seat, checked foot underneath me spins planet earth, oil rigs, tankers, pleasure craft, the accident in 1995 which is why I have a crooked smile, thin strip of coast, estuaries, see those Lego-licious houses. If I had a big house big enough to fit, I'd have to leave because there'd be no room for me. I could fly easily like this a long, long time. But the captain won't tell, won't tell, he won't tell, I yell, where my wings are. Oh, let's see. I brought it with me. Yeah, the radio mast. This is the very first one I wrote. Great. And I wrote it coming back um, on a plane from Bangalore, where I was writer in residence at the um, Srishti School of Art, Technology and Design. And I thought I was going to write lots of wonderful poems in India. wrote absolutely nothing. I spent the entire month in complete culture shock. So um, 
on the plane back. I don't know what happened, but I was got out my notepad and pen, and this is the poem I wrote. The radio mast. How come sea turtles travel alone? Like satellites, they have faithfully shouldered their own frequency for 100 million years. Today is Sunday. Today is the boy I never got to be. He stands before the radio mast. No, he booms, pushes out his ribs like a woofer. Look, no, me. His face, his hands, his toes cling to the edge of dawn, point south of the border, west of the sun. In GMT, a night watchman tunes into his radio to listen to the of the ocean and believes a sea turtle has just checked into the Galaxy Hotel. Thank you so much. That was such a wonderful reading. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about these poems in the new book. Um, in particular, the book is prefaced with the idea of an alter ego thinker poet. The book is called Plain Speak. It's started with a very early memory, in fact it's the earliest memory I have of playing outside and coming to a decision that I thought was a very, very important decision, aged four or five. And I ran indoors into the kitchen where my father was and um, told him I had come to a very important decision and that I was going to be a boy. And I remember my dad crouching down to my height, so I knew the answer was going to be important. And um, he told me that you're a girl or a boy by birth, and that it's not a choice. And this had never occurred to me. I was absolutely devastated by that. And um, I think what upset me more was the fact that it was not my choice. I don't think I really was that interested in being a boy or a girl. I just thought it'd be more useful to be a boy, I think, further in life. You get that very early on as a girl, I'm afraid. And um, so that boy that I never got to be grew up alongside of me and became my alter ego. And in my first collection, I.I. Pianissimo, he emerges as B. And whenever I get stuck in a poem, I can do a number of things. One is to go on safari with the remote control and watch television. And the other is when B appears and he starts kind of helping me with my lines or getting in the way, but he gets into the, you know, he gets into the poems. And so for this book, Plain Speak, um, I decided I would let him, I would let my alter ego be poet and be in conversation with me. Another thing is I really like playing with the confines of syntax while trying to maintain the lyrical. And so trying to find something that is supple and concentrated, that is private, yet will connect with the reader. How did it feel writing over such a sustained sequence, something that's obviously quite a personal issue. Once I found the form, so once I knew that they were going to be each going to be eight lines long, and that was very important to me. They had to be relatively short and long-lined, and um, so I could follow my own train of thought and that of the poet. I think I wrote them in just the space of three to four months, and there's about 60, 70 of them. There are a lot of sort of repeated images, people, um, Goya's one. 
Goya initially came about not even so much through his uh, paintings, but through the etches that he did, the satirical political ones, but also because of the sounds, girl, boy, boy, girl, Goya. Because you do, I don't know if you have that, but you do sometimes when you're writing, is this a, is this a, um, I don't think men ever have this, is this a female thing to say or not? Yeah, I think to to be aware of saying something in a particularly female way or not is something that we're burdened with and maybe also gifted with in a way, exert an extra level of awareness of speaking, but then also we have to shoulder that labour of being constantly aware of how we're saying things or what. Yes, yeah. Yeah, sure, and one of the things that I find that was really resonated with me was something that uh, Cheslo Milos said um, and how difficult it is to remain just one person and then how necessary is it to be just one person and of course in poetry you're forever listening to that really clear voice that needs to be hewn out on the page almost like sculpting it into something that approximates the voice that you have inside your head or the form or the shape of the poem, the thing that you see in your head. So it's that tension between being different people and at the same time trying to be or have one voice as an artist. You also have many different projects, I think, seeing what you do um, with pars. Pars comes from the Latin pars pro toto, where part can stand for the whole. And um, again, I think it comes from my curiosity as a, as a, a child and loving the metaphysical poets and how uh, they used new technological innovations and scientific discoveries to describe the world anew. So the, te- the invention of the telescope and the microscope features in the poetry of Andrew Marvel and John Donne, and suddenly a teardrop drop can be both a world and a soul, and can be more things. And John Donne, you've got the pair of compasses. When it came to writing my own poetry, I tried to start using new technological innovations from science today, and I couldn't. So many branches. So many branches, and it's so specialised. So I thought, well. What about bringing all these different ways of describing the world together? And I'm just very, very interested in, in this, the spaces between disciplines and, and languages, and that's something that really excites me, because it's a way of celebrating curiosity and the beauty of knowledge. So it's, it's, it's great to have in one evening an evening on elasticity, and there'll, there'll be an architect... Uh, Jolian Brewers, who talks about how important it is for structures to be elastic, and um, talking about the Eden Project, for instance, that they built. And if you don't have an elastic roof, the house or the building will collapse. Or um, Sophie Scott, a cognitive neuroscientist, who talks about the elasticity of the brain, and um, um, Fiona Sampson, a poet who talked about the acrobatics of language and reading her work and it's just a great way of combining 
scientific experiment with art and theatre. Some of the overlaps you find uh, must be really incredible. You must feel like you struck gold sometimes. Absolutely, all the time. Or even the sort of cross between a scientist and a poet where inter- like thinking may intersect in a certain way. Sophie Scott, the cognitive neuroscientist, she was talking about brain impairment and people living with brain injuries and how difficult it was for them to uh, formulate a cohesive sentence and they might call uh, ketchup bloodbath. So he said, can you pass me the bloodbath instead of saying, pass me the ketchup. But for, as a poet, that's exactly the moment I'm looking for. And I've just seen one of the books. It looks absolutely beautiful. Um, could you tell me a bit about how you produce and structure those books? So I, I run the organisation with um, Hester Aradse. She is based in Amsterdam. We come up with a we come up with a topic, and this one was light. And we then invite advisors from different disciplines because there's no way on earth we would know who is specialised in light in in physics or in chemistry or in biology or microbiology. We just don't know. And, uh, or even photography, because how they all work with light. So, and same with painters. They then nominate people from their fields of expertise. And we do our own research as well, and then we start bringing together about 50 artists and scientists and ask them to send us their research. And we do ask them specifically not to send us something, not necessarily the final product. We're very interested in processes and and showing research results. That might not mean anything to anyone, so there'll be a huge list of just numbers on a page. And then that will be followed by the sketch for a um, musical score, which will be followed by a sheet of, um, I don't know, contacts or whatever, from a photographer. And it's just the pleasure, really, of seeing how different people look at the world and how they, how, and how what their curiosity and how they, what they do and use to explore that. And I wonder if you could just talk to me as well about your first collection of poems, I, I, Pianissimo, the putting together of that book. What I keep coming back to in my writing is that I want poems to be supple and concentrated. And I'm not really that interested in narratives and stories. When I go to um, see a film or uh, read a book, I can rarely remember the plot. What I love about it is rhythm, textures, fleeting impressions. Those are the things that kind of stick with me, and I wanted that to be reflected in the book, but I also wanted something very musical. I listened to Claude Debussy constantly writing this book, either that or punk, um, to kind of keep undermining my own iambic pentameter drone and try and mix it up and the same I guess with images. One thing I noticed in the book was huge leaps between spaces and geographical places that seemed to tie in quite nicely with your sort of syntactical disruptions and um, it felt quite dislocating but at the same time you you were thrown into places in a really interesting way. Most of the time, the connections are there, we just don't see them, or they're there subliminally, and it's a matter of just discovering them, or allowing them to just... allowing them to enter your imagination, and to 
find the kind of links, and they might not even be my links. They would be different. You know, be a different story in somebody else's head. There's one poem, um, the saddest uh, tree. It's called, and uh, somebody came up to me after I'd read it and said, "Oh, I just really love that poem. I just love that story that happened to me." When in fact there's no story there at all. So he was connecting with something that I hadn't necessarily picked up on. And I think uh, at, what, at one time you can be giving us what we'd expect mm. with associations yeah. and then at the same time flipping up our idea of what we're expected to associate with something. Yeah. Which makes that true story quite nice, I think, as well, because you're never going to really know yeah. what people are going to associate with anything within your poem. Yeah, I enjoy playing like using language like clay but also using syntax like clay and events as well so language needn't be so linear and poetry needn't be so linear poetry is not prose it's far more like uh, musical composition i wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about uh your translation process as well because i know that's a big part of uh, your output as a poet yeah, so because I've got a Dutch background, I translate uh, from the Dutch, and usually it's poetry. And um, I translate poets whose work I admire and where I can learn from. So if one of them, for instance, the current Dutch poet laureate is Anne Vector, and her work is just really fascinating in the way she plays with, with language, and it's very playful, it's humorous, but it's also very smart, intelligent, witty. Obviously, there, there could be so much more done, done for poetry and translation. But do you feel there's a sort of sea change occurring where people are beginning to make that more of a focus um, and prioritise works in translation? People are beginning to realise, it's like, imagine if we live in a world where we can only hear English composers, but not Beethoven, not Mozart, not Shostakovich, not Debussy. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about who you're reading at the moment. I happen to be reading Fleur du Mal, Flowers of Evil, by Charles Baudelaire. What I find very interesting about Baudelaire is that his work is at the pinnacle of what can be do done with lyricism. And what happened, I think, in France is that after Baudelaire, no more lyrical poetry could be written. There's nowhere to take it, nowhere to go with it. Then about a year ago, I came across this book um, called Spring in Winter, written by Valérie Rousseau and uh, translated by Susan Wicks. And here was a French young poet who has the courage to start exploring lyrical poetry again. That fits with the times we live in. And I'd love to read one of her uh, poems to you. So this is from her second collection, translated by Susan Wicks in English, and it's called Talking Vrew. The poem is Rehearsal. You don't know people's hearts, a heart so hard to see that sometimes you bump into it. What a pain to catch the train when there's no one nothing at the other end and angels are inscrutable as water mills you pour yourself a generous glass of wind from a bottled spring from rain from ice you don't know how to live their kinds of lives you pour yourself a great big glass of wine in a house with children future dog 
The platform echoes to the sound of feet. The platform echoes, echoes the wheels of cases, noises from before. The platform's empty, 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 empty. You stub your toe on air. Excuse me, madam, sir, I thought you were a cloud. You're numberless, you're nobody to me. And I am numberless, I'm almost nothing as you are. So let's have a friendly drink together. No mean tricks, no blind man's buff. The only heart we know in darkness is our own, and hardly even that, or in the daytime either. So it's cheers, and here's to you, your good health, mate. The sun be beating down on us when we step out. Thank you so much. Yes, there's lots of unexpected twists and turns in what she does with idioms and the meaning of words. and But there's also an immediacy there, a directness, and... Um, very down to earth and I really like that about her work thank you so much for coming in and reading your poems and other people's poems to us and I'll be looking forward to seeing plain speak in in book form yeah thank you thank you for having me